It's Tuesday, May 7th of 2019 in Oakland, California, and after spending an insufferable 48 hours receiving voicemail prompt after voicemail prompt, failed texts, and initiating unsuccessful calls to various hospitals and jails, Isada and Paula Bandabela, as well as their remaining seven children, can no longer afford to wait around. It was at this time they determined that, look, enough is enough, and decide to call in police intervention to help aid in the search for their son and brother Jonathan. And while 19-year-old Jonathan is a young avid soccer player, college student, and effervescent social butterfly, he never allows the fear of missing out to creep in and make him stray away from his roots. And as the fourth eldest of eight children to a tight-knit family from Sierra Leone, Jonathan knows the importance of communication and would never let this amount of time pass without reaching out to one of his siblings, or parents for that matter. And given their closest, one can only imagine the dread that has completely consumed the hearts and minds of the Bandabela family, after not seeing or hearing from Jonathan since around 4 p.m. on Friday, May 3rd, when he left his family home with intent on traveling roughly six hours south to Los Angeles in order to attend a soccer tournament and formal dance over the weekend. And although taking steps to involve police offered just an ounce of relief to the Bandabelas, they weren't quite prepared for the burden of injustice that they were soon to face, carried out by the same legal system put in place to quote-unquote protect them. You see, unbeknownst to the family, Jonathan's 1998 Silver Honda Accord was actually found abandoned about 30 minutes west on the San Mateo Hayward Bridge, just a little over 10 hours after he left home that Friday afternoon. And according to the Vandabelas, had the California Highway Patrol and Oakland Police Department taken this discovery serious at the time, well, who knows if Jonathan's story would have the same outcome that it has today. You see, close to 1.30 a.m. on Saturday, May 4th, a total of four 911 calls were placed by passing motorists, advising that there was a car parked and blocking traffic in the westbound slow lane of the San Mateo Hayward Bridge. Two of the four callers also mentioned seeing an individual either standing on or looking over the railing of the bridge, but unfortunately no further details regarding the sex, race, height, or clothing of the person were revealed by the callers. Nevertheless, dispatchers determined that, given the nature of the calls, it was imperative to still send officers to the scene. So roughly 20 minutes after the initial 911 call was placed, two CHP officers arrived to the bridge only to find the abandoned car parked with zero occupants. It wasn't noted whether or not the car was still running, however items were left in the vehicle, which were later determined to be Jonathan's passport, along with the duffel bag he left home with, which contained his soccer gear and suit for the dance he was to attend. Police, however, for some strange reason, skipped over utilizing the items in the car to identify the owner and went straight to locating the vehicle registration. But unfortunately, the car had not been registered to anyone at the time. You see, Jonathan had purchased the car via Craigslist and hadn't obtained a registration at that point, but despite the lack of documentation, had the officers taken a little more initiative in searching the vehicle, I can only imagine that they would have been able to make a link between the items left in the car and the owner. They instead, however, did a search of the remaining westbound side of the bridge, checked the emergency call boxes which had not been activated, and reviewed two of the working cameras on the bridge, finding no clues at the time. And yeah, I said it, two working cameras. Like, can you imagine? This is the 25th largest bridge in the entire world, extending seven miles, and for some reason at the time only had two working cameras? Like, what are the odds and, and just why? So after what seems to be a lackluster search of the westbound side of the bridge, and from what I was able to gather, no search effort on the east, officers decide to close the case just one hour later. And to make matters worse, no search of the waters was conducted at the time, and the decision to tow Jonathan's car to a private lot was made. Which I'm also trying to understand. So you're telling me after receiving multiple calls stating a car was abandoned and someone was either looking over or potentially hanging over the railing, the initial reaction is just to tow the car away without conducting a search? I mean, the entire thought process behind this investigation just kind of throws me, and I really find it tough to understand the energy behind it. But 
you know, I'm not affiliated with the law, nor do I know their standard protocols for this type of scenario. I would just assume using common sense that it should have possibly been handled a bit different. And I wish I could say police efforts to locate Jonathan were increased after making the connection between his abandoned car and the missing persons report filed by the Banabela family, but that was unfortunately not the case. You see, the Banabelas reported Jonathan missing on May 7th, but can you guess how many days it took for his file to be transferred to a detective? Two freaking days! Two days, guys, and true crime lover or not, I'm sure majority of us are aware that the first 48 hours are critical in any case. My first thought was, like, where's the urgency? But according to an article written for the Hyphenated Republic, OPD's missing persons unit seemed to be understaffed at the time of Jonathan's disappearance, which I guess maybe was a contributing factor to the lag in time between the day he was reported missing to the day the file was picked up by a detective. But nonetheless, when the band of bailiffs were notified on Friday, May 10th, that Jonathan's car was located in the complete opposite direction of where he was to be traveling one week prior, their fears really began to sink in. As I mentioned, Jonathan lived in Oakland and was to be traveling southbound to Los Angeles, but his car was located west of Oakland. I also have to mention that the San Mateo Bridge connects Oakland to Foster City, which as you can see is nowhere near Los Angeles, and traveling in this direction doesn't provide a convenient route to the Los Angeles area. And to add to the mystery, surveillance footage of Jonathan's car entering the toll area of the bridge at 1.22 a.m. actually surfaced, and still to this day, police have not been able to identify the driver of the vehicle. And honestly, I mean, after reviewing this photo, it's literally impossible to make out who or what was even inside of the car. So you can imagine how concerning this information was for the Bandabelas, but to add salt to an already festering wound, OPD nonchalantly suggests that the case be closed because they believe Jonathan committed an act of suicide. And when the Bandabelas got note of this accusation, all hope that they had in the justice system began to quickly disintegrate. Not only was there zero physical evidence suggesting suicide aside from calls from an unknown person looking over the bridge, Jonathan also never shown signs of depression or suicidal ideation. So the idea of him executing such an act that would in turn end his life in their opinion was utterly absurd. And although police claimed they conducted a helicopter search of the bridge on the 13th of May and a marine unit search on the 14th which neither apparently yielded any results, the band of bailiffs couldn't help but feel as though because they were immigrants that their concerns were in no way being taken seriously. Not to mention the story of his disappearance hadn't even been picked up by any local news outlets. And to compound the feeling of injustice, the news of a missing dog was broadcasted before Jonathan's story, which is not only heartbreaking but insulting to say the least. As a family, I honestly cannot imagine the type of pain and anger such an act added to an already unbearable situation. And after feeling as though police were being dismissive of Jonathan's case, the family decided it was best to just begin taking matters into their own hands. So on May 21st, the band of Bailas attended an Oakland City Council meeting, pleading for help and informing the council members of the lack of effort in locating Jonathan, making them aware that 18 days had passed and zero efforts to even post information regarding Jonathan's disappearance on their active social media platforms. So, with the little pressure that was applied to the OPD after the family attended the city council meeting, a missing persons flyer was finally posted to their Twitter and Facebook pages on June 21st, which was six whole weeks after Jonathan's disappearance. And I'm sorry, not sorry, but I have to interject the story just to make a quick point. I'm quite sure many of you have never even heard of Jonathan Bandabela up until this point, but I can guarantee majority of you are familiar with other high-profile cases that don't involve a Black victim. And while I strongly believe all victims deserve justice, regardless of their racial, social, or economic background, it's just imperative that we sound the alarm on the fact that there are blatant disparities between the way in which cases involving white missing women especially are handled versus a black missing man, woman, or child. 
and the fact that in most cases involving a missing person of color, police are quick to either criminalize them, label them as a runaway, or assume they committed suicide. And families have to suffer daily knowing their loved one is just out in the world somewhere, not receiving the media attention and the justice they deserve. But continuing with the story. So as days turn into months, police aren't able to provide any new leads, and the band of Bailas are becoming increasingly discouraged in their ability and willingness to locate Jonathan. Not to mention answers to pertinent questions such as what evidence was discovered upon searching Jonathan's vehicle, and details relating to his cell phone activity were being avoided or met with dubious answers to say the least. In fact, the band of Bailas soon discovered that OPD only did a cursory search of the car, and this was months after its arrival to the private lot. In addition, they never even requested that it be removed and processed by a forensic technician. Instead, according to the family, OPD actually urged the lot owner to sell Jonathan's vehicle, stating that it was per the request of the family. And this bit of information not only infuriated the band of Bailas, but also created a space of confusion. You see, after being informed by the lot owner that it would require thousands of dollars to have the vehicle removed at their expense, the family contacted police for assistance, and according to them, was promised that the police chief at the time, Ann Kirkpatrick, would be the one to cover all the expenses related to the recovery of Jonathan's vehicle. Which to me seems to be the least they could do, I mean, considering the way the investigation was handled from the beginning. So hearing that it was per the request of the police that Jonathan's car be sold, knowing that it could potentially be the missing link to locating him made no sense to the family. Police also weren't able to offer much information regarding Jonathan's phone records. His cell phone from what they've said or what I've been able to gather was not in the vehicle. And according to police, it only pinged once on the night he disappeared near the San Leandro Hayward border which is about 18 miles north of the San Mateo Bridge. No additional specifics regarding Jonathan's call or text log have been provided, at least not to the public, which has left the band of Bailas and everyone that loved Jonathan with more questions than answers. In addition, I was not able to find any articles or points of reference advising whether or not the police had interviewed any of Jonathan's friends, and if so, what information was recovered in those conversations. Oh, and I'm sure many of you are also wondering whether or not the list of individuals who called in the abandoned car on May 4th were interviewed, well, the answer sadly is no. Also, per the hyphenated Republic report, all records were purged in order to remain in compliance with CHP policies, leading to yet another dead end. But the real game changer in this investigation came in the month of September of 2019, and not in a manner that was conducive to solving this case, but rather, according to the Band of Bailas, as a performative act, merely exposing the true feelings of those who were meant to be in charge of the investigation. On September 9th, more than four months after Jonathan was reported missing, OPD decided to hold a press conference, revealing what little information they had regarding Jonathan's disappearance. And guys, brace yourself for this madness. During this time on the podium, Deputy Chief at the time, Oliver Cunningham, alluded to the fact that maybe Jonathan was in Europe playing soccer, or perhaps just needed some time away to travel on the East Coast. Like what? First of all, Jonathan's passport was recovered in the car, so clearly this young man is not in Europe. But the audacity and insensitivity of this statement really highlights how reckless OPD kind of handled the case. And you know, honestly, kudos to the band of Bayless for keeping their cool because I personally would have lost it. And after such a display of insensitivity, efforts from OPD honestly showed little to no improvement. A full year passed with no further leads or evidence being provided to the family, then another year still yielding no information that could help inch them closer to finding out what happened to Jonathan or where he may be. And now it has been more than three years since the band of Bayless laid eyes on Jonathan's precious face. 
And guys, there's actually something I didn't mention in the beginning of the story. And that was that Jonathan, as he was leaving home that fateful day on May 3rd, he told his mom that there was something he wanted to talk to her about. But since he was in such a hurry, he'd rather discuss the matter upon his return, which was supposed to be that following Sunday on Mother's Day, May 5th. And at the time, Misada didn't think much of Jonathan's request, considering the fact that such a statement wasn't out of the ordinary for him. But now, however, she and the rest of Jonathan's family and friends can't help but wonder if, what if he wanted to reveal something that was in a way connected to his disappearance? You know, my heart truly cries out for this family and the cloud of uncertainty that hovers over them each and every single day. And at this point, and lack of support from police, the band of Bayless have turned to each other, the community, and most importantly, to their faith, to help lift their spirits and aid in the search and finding their missing peace. And with Jonathan's birthday coming up on October 19th, I'm sure he and his family have no bigger wish than to bring him home safely. So my crime cupcakes, let's join in their fight and do just that. Bring Jonathan home. Jonathan Bandabela was born on October 19, 1999, and would be 23 years old this year. He's 5'7 with brown eyes, and at the time of his disappearance, weighed 175 pounds with black hair. He was reportedly wearing a gray athletic jumpsuit and driving a 1998 Silver Honda two-door Accord. And if you or anyone you know, or... Okay, I'll stop. 